The Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarin.com slash rain. Want to make a podcast? Let me tell you about Spotify's program for podcasters, and it's called Spotify for Podcasters. I've been using it for over a year now. Couldn't be happier from the switch. You can record wherever you create podcasts, whether it be your phone, computer, and it's easy to upload it and distribute it to everywhere podcasts are heard. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. Best of all, Spotify for Podcasters is completely free. So launch your podcast today. Get started with Spotify for Podcasters. Go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. You're listening to That Burn Podcast, episode 42, part two. All right, thanks for listening in. This is part two of episode 42. And I'm sitting down with Matt Blitz Ayers, who is our commander of the 77th Fighter Squadron while we were deployed downrange, support of Operation Inherent Resolve. I think a good conversation today. He's shedding his perspective as a commander. We we talk about the Axe Investigation Board. I think with a little bit more subjectivity. That's for you to decide. But again, trying to shed and build some context around more of just the 36-page report that the Air Force publishes. Again, if you're looking to support a good cause, pyroswings.com. But Blitz, he is a career Viper driver. He's a weapons school instructor. He's forgotten more about the F-16 than I've ever learned, but a very experienced aviator. Uh, He's a great commander, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. So that being said, let's get into the episode with Blitz. (laughs) Awesome. Blitz, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Happy to have you here. It's going to be good to talk about this. This is something that affected both of our lives. We're not going to dig into your career, although we can bring some stuff up, but the point of this uh, episode is to dig into a mishap that happened while we were deployed, uh, supporting Operation Inherent Resolve back in 2014. So with that being said, I do just kind of get a little quick snapshot. I do always ask for like the 30 to 60 second elevator pitch from all the guests. You can just kind of tell everyone who you are and uh, what you've been, what you did and what you're doing today. And then we'll dig into this mishap. Yeah, you bet, Rain. Thanks for having me on today. Um, so Matthew Ayers, Blitz is my call sign. You'll hear Rain refer to that as primarily. I'm not sure if he knew my first name was Matthew. You, your first name? I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> why, why would you need one of those? Yeah. Um, so I joined, uh, I was commissioned in 96, retired in uh, 2018, and flew F-16s for the vast majority of that time. And relevant to today, was the squadron commander of the 77th Expeditionary Fighter Squadron. That left Shire Force Base in October of 2014. Uh, Rain was in the squadron at that time, which is, you know, kind of why we're here today to talk about uh, Captain Pyro Du Bois and the incident that happened on 1 December 2014. Well, 
Yeah, thanks, Blitz. Um, again, I didn't know you had a first name, so it's good to know that it's Matthew now. After all these years of knowing <laughs> I'm glad you. glad. Hopefully you didn't write it down. You'll forget it. Halfway through the podcast, you'll call me David or something else. Yeah. I wanted to go back and listen to it. Uh, fighter pilot <laughs> stuff. But, no, this one, you know, we're going we're gonna to dig into the AIB. So, for those who are listening, not familiar, that when there is a mishap in the Air Force, two things happen. There is a safety investigation board, an SIB, that happens. And that occurs first. That information is privileged. So you think of like a cl- uh, attorney-client privilege. That information stays internal to the Air Force. And the whole goal that really is if there was something that was going on, get that information out to the pilots, the air crew, whoever might affect so that we don't make the same mistake twice. Once that concludes, the next thing that happens is a AIB, an accident investigation board. And broad brush, they're really trying to place blame uh, for it. And that's just kind of a general statement, but the AIB is released to the public. So this is the AIB that I'm going to be reading from that we'll have up on the website that if you want to go review it, but it goes through from start to finish nuts and bolts. But the goal for today is, you know, this is a, a 40 page document, but it doesn't have a lot of the context and the goal for today is to build some of that context around this mishap, right? Because pyro is a lot more than this document. Our squadron is a lot more than this document. And so to build a picture of really uh, what happened, some of our opinions, some I think, which we'll consider be fact, but you know, we'll leave it up to you guys to listen and just dig into it. And ultimately the goal of this is right. We don't make the same mistake twice. We learn from mistakes. We get better. We improve, and then we're going to honor Pyro and his memory. So with that being said, I'm going to dig into... Yep. Hey, Rain, let, can I, before you get started, I just want yeah, to make sure. a quick comment. So for those that aren't familiar, why the Air Force would do a safety board and then do a separate event. Um, so the FAA doesn't really do it that way. And what the Air Force is really trying to get to is, are there st- st- systemic issues, either at the highest level, down to the wing level, all the way down to the squadron, um, that are putting people in situations that are unsafe. And was this accident the result of that? Like truly as, as bare bone truth as you can get, uh, with no concept of, oh, it was your fault or anything like that. Just like truly what happened? Did someone make a mistake? Did we have poor guidance so that if there is a problem, you know, poor leadership, poor fuel, um, you know, the radio on the airplane isn't working right to fly the instrument landing procedure or something like that, that we get to that. And, and can make safety improvements. And then you have an AIB, and this is more akin to what the FAA, the National Transportation Safety Board do. They try to do both at one time. And the nature of human beings is such that if you feel like your life is being examined, potentially graded and evaluated, you're going to try to put yourself in the best light. I'm not saying people would lie, but I'm saying it is a completely different feel, a much more defensive feeling when you're talking to the AIB than when you're talking to the safety board. So I just wanted to kind of talk about that. You can make a judgment for yourself if that's a good or bad way to do it. I can personally tell you that I have seen actions taken from safety board results that I thought benefited the safety of F-16s at fighter pilots in general. That's a really good point because SIB, while some stuff can come out of that, that might like, for instance, let's say, I don't know, you were drinking, you you did something malice and and, and like that's going to haunt you. Um, But typically the safety board, when that occurs, if you mess something up, 
it's encouraged to talk about it and bring that up and highlight it because it's going to make it safer for everyone else. And that might not, that's not going to be the damning thing that, you know, kills you. There might be some retraining. You, you might not be flying. There's some things you've probably have seen it more at the commander level than I have. But again, it's, it's designed to try to get that open flow of communication to get the, get to the real root cause and prevent you from being defensive when everyone's looking at you under a microscope or that would be the feeling, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I said, I, I was going to start reading from the AIB before we do that. Let's, let's back up to leading up to this because this AIB kicks off on one December, 2014, the date of the mishap. That's when the real first record of it is. But if we back all the way up to leading up to the deployment, what the tempo was like, what things were like in the squadron, I showed up in March of 2014 as a new guy in the squadron, and I had to get a lot of training done, get through mission qualification training, get spun up. It was a pretty busy time. But can you walk me through the lead up to the deployment, which we were out the door in October of 2014? Can you kind of walk me through what was going on in your mind, what was going on in the squadron at that time? What were the things that we were juggling in order to be ready to go out the door? Yeah, so I just want to uh, address that for a second, Rain. I, I I think this is an area where a lot of people don't understand what had happened across the Air Force. I, I'm going to use 2012 as a line in the sand because that is when I came back from the Pentagon and um, back into the squadron at the operational level, right? And when I uh, I got back to Shaw Air Force Base in 2012, I was the director of operations, so the number two in charge of the squadron, and I took over the gamblers in June 2013. During that time at Shaw, when I came to Shaw, I was there 2000, 2003 as, a, as a, just a, a line captain, right? Just flying the F-16. That was my job. I wasn't an instructor yet. I was a flight lead. And at that time in the squadron, we had a squadron commander who's almost 3,000 hours of instructor pilot. The DO is 2,500 hours of instructor pilot. All of our flight commanders were either majors or like uh, in the only case, or it wasn't major, it was a captain who was getting ready to go to weapons school. So, you know, highly talented, tons of experience, 1,250 hours in the airplane, the F-16. Um, and then underneath that were captains who were already instructor pilots, you know, just probably had 12 instructor pilots just internal to the squadron. Caveat or compare that to 2012 when I show up at um, the 79th, the squadron commander was an IP. I just came off the staff, so I, had, I didn't get qualified as an IP yet. We had the weapons officer and we had one flight commander, four total instructors, and I wasn't even qualified yet. So the amount of experience, the level of experience had completely inverted. And I tell you that to give you some context. So one of the very first things we did when I was a squadron commander, I took over in June. And I want to say that pyro and chaos were the first two, um, the first two, one was a flight lead. One was a wingman that came from Korea, but the first two people I was able to draft, we, we, we do this internal selection of who we need for, to balance out the experience in the squadron. And at that time we looked at the deployment and I sat down with my DO at the time, my director of ops. And we said, those guys have to be instructors by the time we leave, because the only other instructor we have was getting ready to go to weapons school, which was great for him. I was really excited for him. Uh, but we just looked at the squadron experience level. And, and I tell you that to tell you, that was a lot of work that Pyro and Chaos had to do. An unbelievable amount of work. Then on top of that, they also happened to be some of our most experienced captains, um, just because, again, the, 
the experience in inverted. So they're both, I've trained them both up to be flight commanders and they both are taking us to red flags as, you know, uh, an event POC, which is a ton of planning, a ton of coordination. Um, I pyro that time had also taken us to a green flag, right? And he was also my mobility coordinating, uh, coordination officer for where we were deployed. And I, I tried, I mean, I, this was weekly. I would talk to my DO about, we've got to get stuff off of his plate. We've got to get stuff off his plate, but we just didn't have the people. We were building up the number of people in the squadron, which was great, but they were all in training. They all showed up either needing a mission qualification training top off, or they were young. You were, you were the exception, right? You did need a mission uh, qualification top off, but you were a captain that had experience based off things that happened. So as soon as you got mission qual, I can't remember if it was 10 minutes or or 10 hours, but I guarantee you it was in that same week. I gave you an additional job right. in the squadron because we just didn't have any other people. Um, and, and truthfully, I can't remember what I asked you to do, but I guarantee you, I asked you to do was, something that probably was took time off your plate. It was really important. I know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, but I do remember that time. Cause I, I mean, I showed up, it was busy as a, as a new guy trying to figure out the politics of the squadron, like who's who, and you're know, just getting the vibe because that's my first fighter squadron. Granted, I'd been, you know, a fape. So I'd been around the squadron life and had some experience. So you kind of saw at least how the squadron worked and you kind of get a feel for stuff. But again, I show up, I got to figure that out. I got to figure out what my requirements are. But I remember Chaos and Pyro specifically because they were both younger than me. Obviously, they've been in the Viper longer than that. But I was watching them balance their new roles of flight commander while they're both going in the IPUG, knowing how busy they were. And I remember Pyro being the West of uh, pro jokes. The funny story there is I, I do remember him, like he was running full speed ahead. And like, that's not even like he had it in afterburner. It was stuck there. And I remember he overslept one morning uh, and he, <laughs> he, he was the pro Joe and he showed up late. Um, you know, it, it happens. And he got in a little bit of trouble for that, <laughs> you know, but it's just kind of a funny, funny story about pyro. that just like makes me chuckle to this day, but I mean, chaos and pyro, those guys were humping it. I mean, everyone was humping it, just trying to get the minimum done, right? And then trying to be, you know, then add a little bit more on there. But we had to check all the boxes to get things done. And it was busy. It was a busy time. Yeah. So were you, did you do, were you in a mobility officer? I, so is that, is that so I started, I was a CELO, so the standard evaluation yep. liaison officer, whatever, you know, yeah, paperwork, check rides and stuff like that. I became the mobility guy after tally because i think right. pyro was mobility yeah. and then tally took over right when he finished the ipug which i mean that job right. was insane so i want to put that perspective for our listeners because you're doing a nice job of being humble uh and i appreciate that but you being a CLO at that time so remember when i was at shaw the first time our CLO was a major who had 1100 hours and yeah. was an evaluator pilot. So it got all the way through the instructor program and now was an authorized evaluator pilot for the squadron. You had just gotten qualified in the F-16 and I made you a CELO because you had the officer timeline. Like you said, you'd already been a vape, you'd been a captain longer. I think you were the oldest captain in the squadron or second oldest captain in the squadron. And so I was trying to balance your maturity and leadership with your inexperience in the airplane. So, you know, me putting you in that position just goes to show how much I trusted you, but also like, I would have loved to not have right. had to put you there so you could just focus on flying the F-16, but that just wasn't the way it and worked the out. The time period you're referencing, you said 2003 to 2004, that's, you know, really when it was, you had the guys, I would say the right guys in the right spot and you weren't having to make 
concessions to fill boxes or fill squares there. What was the, what was the inversion? That's probably a whole separate podcast in itself, but snapshot. Why, why did we end up that way in 2012 on? Why, why so inexperienced? I'm going to give you the 30,000 foot picture as I saw it happening. Yeah. F-35 was starting to come on board. So F-22 getting done with OT in like 2005, 2006, starting to become a mature weapon system. F-35 was already, I mean, I don't know that we started making them yet. I think we started producing them in 2008. But in the F-16, F-35 transition, um, somewhere in that time frame, and I'm not going to be able to tell you the specific year, it was not sequestration because I know that was in 2012. But we had a similar event where we went through this big, um, the Air Force in particular had to make concessions. Um, F-22 was a very expensive airframe. We were trying to bring drones on board. Um, we were looking for ways to trim the budget, and that was just something that was happening DOD-wide across the Pentagon. And what we decided to do as a force, obviously not me, but what right. generals at the Pentagon decided to do, uh, was to eliminate um, a large portion of F-16 training with the assumption that F-35 was going to ramp up commensurate with F-16 ramp down. And when F-35 got uh, delayed, go figure, you make a one airplane for three different units and they all do different things. Um, the consequence of those uh, ramps not happening at the same time, we had really not thought about what would happen because the F-16 at that time was training three times as many pilots, fighter pilots as any other airframe because there's three times as many F-16s. Like it's not magic. Right. We weren't doing anything better. It was just, there was, and so when that throughput slowed down, we couldn't take as many pilots out of pilot training and put them into fighter cockpits. So we slowed down pilot training and that caused a tidal wave that then started in about 2009 to 2010. There was not enough pilots to transition to the guard reserve. They were hiring like crazy. Um, that, so that put even additional pressure. And then, oh, by the way, airlines were hiring like crazy at that time. So those three things, the uh, training reduction, because that takes years to stand back up, followed by two additional external factors, guard reserve hiring and airlines hiring. Uh, we saw retention rates go somewhere from between 65 to 70% of people were signing the bonus to about 25 to 30%. And that happened for like four straight years. And you're seeing the yeah. results of that now. Or you, you saw it, we saw it then. It is also, there's been other things since then that have happened. Retention rates have come back a little bit, but um, not tremendously so. Not where it Yeah, moral be. story, this doesn't happen overnight. And it leads, it leads us to where we are today. I mean, there's, there's several things and they're still dealing with, I, even though it's come back a little bit, retention still still a factor. And I think you would still find inexperience relatively low, especially if you compare it to the early 2000s. That being said, uh, we know we're really busy getting out the door, getting out the door in October of 2014. A lot going on, juggling a lot of pieces. When we were going out the door, how confident did you feel? Like, did you think we were squared away and ready to go? Did you have some question marks still hanging over your head? What were your thoughts as we were leaving? Well, here's your, uh, here's commander speak, right? So uh, the first time I'm out, I'm like, absolutely not. I would love another month where everyone took everything off the squadron's plate and all we did was focus on training, right? Cause I knew it was going to be intense. Uh, over half the people, probably more like nine out of 10 people hadn't deployed before. They definitely hadn't deployed 
to what we were getting ready to do, we were know we're going in, into inherent resolve. Remember, at that time, we didn't really know what the surface to air threats were. Um, we didn't know what countries we've been flying in. We didn't really know what the ROE was going to be. That was evolving on a weekly basis. You know, we took over from Masawa, who went there on a training mission. And, and I mean, hats off to Colonel Struve and his squadron. They did, did amazing work spinning up while in theater to do combat. That was incredible. Um, but, you know, we were stepping into a situation that they had put a Band-Aid on an arterial bleed. And so we were going to have to fill that infrastructure. And, um, and so, yeah, man, I, I wanted a whole nother month where we could just get our brain focused. Cause like you said, I mean, the day before we took off as you know, we left at zero three AM local shot time. I'll never forget. I'm sitting on the runway at two fifty nine, waiting to plug it in the afterburner. And that day before I went on pilot rest, I was arguing with our LRS folks about <laughs> what could go in pilots. And I'm like, I right. just don't feel like I'm focused. Right. But on the other, on the other side of that, um, this is the other side of my commander, uh, I had never been around a group of people at that time that were able to solve problems more autonomously and more effectively. I had no, I mean, I slept great. I slept like a baby the night before we left because I didn't know, no matter what happened, we may not have been as ready as I would have liked to be, but I knew we'd react uh, quickly and as well as anybody. And so I was confident. You know, I actually, I was just randomly thinking about this too, because remember all the things we had to get done leading up to the deployment and part of this is always reacting and how we handle things. But it was like, I think almost like three or four weeks prior to us deploying when we had to go through the advanced beatings of SEER, which was a late uh, surprise. Hey, by the way, the entire squadron has to stand down for a week and go through advanced resistance training. Like we didn't have, like everything was down to the wire and then, Oh, by the way, we're going to take a whole week of flying out of it. So Again, I think just a testament to you and everyone else in the squadron just getting things done because that was a huge bowling ball that got thrown down the alley at the the pins. They were just sitting there, just kind of holding everything together. Yeah. So I remember that specifically, and you're right. It was like three or four weeks prior, and I remember that specifically because we were still talking to Afsit, or I was. Um, I wouldn't let anyone else have these conversations because I I know that they would just lost their mind. Like they were still thinking about plusing us up six more jets. And right. like, I was trying to like, where are those people going to come from? I, I don't know if I can pull them from other squadrons. Like, I don't know what the qualifications are. Like, and so Afton said, we just need a yes or no. Can you do it? And I'm like, physically, can I do it? Yes. Right. And that they didn't want to hear about qualifications or training or who was ready. That's, that's not their problem. It's like, okay. And so they turned it off. That's, it was the Thursday of that event where they said, no, you just stick with what you have. And that's like, great that now someone's going to go yell at me for for an hour but at least at least i don't have to inform 12 more people that they're going to deploy oh by the way in two weeks oh uh, and see i just have different memories i just remember chaos getting slapped non-stop during the resistance training <laughs> <laughs> chaos if you're listening he just had the slappy face i don't know what it was they picked on him <laughs> i remember you talk about people that learn quickly i remember by wednesday chaos said i learned that if i open my mouth they don't hit me as hard <laughs> i mean that's that is fidelity. Yeah. That is fidel <laughs> Let's think about how hard it is to focus on changing your muscle movements so no one hits you. <laughs> oh, good for chaos. You know, he's smart, though. I would just been getting hit hard. <laughs> I know. I don't think I'd ever gotten there. Oh, the digress. So, yeah, I mean, this is all to say, I think it was a rather challenging time. Now that units don't have to face it, there's always variables you have to deal with. But it was a pretty hectic and busy time just to get everyone qualified and out the door, going to 
a relatively unknown deal because again, half the time, half the summer, we thought we were going to go do a training deployment and then ISIS shows up on the map in June and then it really just ramps up from there. So, um, juggling a few things. We show up in October and again, the Masawa guys, like you said, I think did a great job reacting to the scenario halfway through their training deployment. They're now loading up with weapons. They're dropping bombs. They're doing arm overwatch at the embassy. They're flying nine hour sorties like routinely. They're dealing with some stuff and part of the you know remnants, this is small stuff, but like the mission data card, the lineup card where we plugged our steer points for diverts, waypoints, like it was all over the place because they could only react and just like, that was just like, hey, here it is. And it, it's a bandaid and it's good enough, but it made no sense. You know, you had, diverts in random spots in the 900 series of the steer points and the 600 series. And it just, it was all over the place. So those guys were dealing with it again. That's just, again, painting the picture of what we're dealing with here. Cause I think the context is important. It was, it was a different situation. So that being said, I was going to jump in here to the first page of the executive summary, of the AIB, unless you have anything you want to highlight before we go. So no, it's all right, let's hit it. So I'm not going to read this in its entirety. I'm going to hit a lot of it. But again, this is coming out of the AIB, which is uh, published and is out there on the internet. I'll throw it up on um, the Afterburn uh, podcast website. So if you want to read it, you guys can check it out. But uh, on December 1st, 2014 at 4.58 a.m. local time, the Mishap aircraft, an F-16 tail number 910375, deployed with the 77th Expeditionary Fighter Squadron to a classified base of operation in the U.S. Central Command of Air Responsibility, impacted the ground at nine and a half nautical miles southwest of the base. The mishap flight was a combat mission in support of Operation Inherent Resolve. The mishap pilot did not attempt to eject from his aircraft and was fatally injured on impact. And that's Pyro. As Wingman was Bear, we'll mention that. Uh, so the mishap flight, again, is comprised of Pyro and Bear as the Wingman. The aircraft was destroyed. Um, the host nation forces recovered the mishap pilot and transported them back to the and transported Pyro back to the base. The mishap uh, caused no damage to any civilians or no civilian injuries. So the mishap flight took off from the base at 4:21 local, so about 30 minutes, 35, 37 minutes prior to this mishap, and flew entirely at night. Upon takeoff, the mishap wingman, which is Bear, experienced a landing gear door malfunction and requiring the mishap flight to remain near the base, burn down fuel, and land. During the subsequent recovery to base, the mishap pilot unintentionally descended from 3,000 feet mean sea level to ground level at 1,680 feet mean sea level. So about 1,200 or 1,400 or 1,300 feet there above the grounds where he started the descent. The mishap pilot maneuvered the mishap aircraft during his 32 seconds prior to this period and did not attempt to stop the descent until an abrupt pull away from the ground during the last seconds of flight. It was insufficient to avoid impact. The mishap pilot flew 1,000 feet below minimum altitude prior to starting the landing approach, reducing the time to recognize and recover from the subsequent unintentional descent. With no radar control to expedite their mission, uh, their combat mission, the mishap flight executed a common practice of joining the instrument approach inside the initial approach fix against public, published procedures. The mishap pilot did not attempt to eject and was killed upon impact. So the accident board president found by clear and convincing evidence the cause of the mishap was mishap pilots unrecognized descent into the ground resulting into controlled flight and terrain and then 
Additionally, the president found by proponents of evidence, the mishap pilots initial intentional descent below the men's safe altitude significantly reduced the time available to recognize and respond to the unrecognized descent there. Uh, a lot to unpack here. Um, I would like to say, I, I, I kind of start off here. Um, I was actually walking back from the bathroom and I remember them showing up overhead and started burning down fuel. And the reason I remember that is one, you know, it was the middle of the night. It was, you know, five o'clock in the morning there and two jets showing up at high key. Catch your attention when you're an F-16 pilot of what's going on there. Uh, I went back and I was on the phone talking to Anna and about 30 minutes into our conversation, uh, the phone cut out. And then, or sorry, the phone didn't cut out yet. I heard the uh, recall of the commander's action team. And Anna said, what was that? And I just said, you know what? Someone probably had a medical emergency. Someone probably had a heart attack, most likely. And they're recalling all the medical personnel because we were a small base. So they're getting everyone there as fast as they can. And then a few minutes later, our our internet cut out. So um, I ended up going to bed. And about 30 minutes later, Hyde woke me up. It was daylight at that point. I was a night guy um, and said that there was a commander's call. And then I had to go to the tent. So I went there and that's where Motor caught me as I was walking in. And he said, hey, we need to get their formates. And for those listening, that's your check ride folder and everything you need. Since I was a CELO, that was part of my responsibility, making sure everyone's check ride folders and stuff like that were good to go. Having the experience that I did at that point, I knew at that point there had been a mishap because you don't go get formates unless you need it. But we had to sit there and we waited. And I remember sitting there for 30, 40 minutes I, you know, this kind of haze trying to figure out who wasn't in the room uh, at that point. So um, not, not, not a great night for sure, right? And next couple of days. But um, digging in to... Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk to yeah. you real quick there, Ray. Um, but just for context here, you know these are written to be, uh, you know, kind of sanitized. Uh, you know, just just the facts for a reason, right? Because when you're reading these, you know, people are trying to understand what happened. They're trying to to make some judgments. And you know, humans, if you're reading about terrible things that happen to humans, it's not the best and the best way to to remain objective. But so during that time, I just want to remind people the reason that I'm waking everybody up. It was my call is, you know, I want people to understand what's happened. They're not, they, all of a sudden the base has gone into communications lockdown. It's a standard procedure. They're not able to talk to their friends and family. They're not able to talk to their wives and kids. You know, they, they, they're starting to get a little bit worried, like what's happening. Um, and so I wanted to make sure I had that information. But while you guys were waiting uh, is when the helicopter landed and Pyro was returned to the base. Right. And I went down and, and did the ID and, you know, sp spent a few minutes looking at him, uh, talking to the doctor, trying to do right by him and his family. And, um, and so I just want to give context to that, right? That that's a non-sanitized version. There's very real gut-riching things that are happening to the members of the squadron and that people are doing outside of that. And the report just says it's zero four fifty eight, And of course right. it's supposed to be written by that. Like I understand why it's written that way, but I just want people to realize this is a, a, a real life event where someone has perished, uh, when you're going through the AIB. And so that's why, uh, much like we talked about in, in other aspects, right? Like 
people may have very visceral emotional reactions when they're talking about these kind of things. No doubt. And to that point, I remember, um, which I didn't realize at the time, such a small base. We had a small support, uh, morale support, you know, which I think was consistent, maybe like four or five airmen and like a staff sergeant who ran the morale tent, but their additional duty was mortuary affairs, right? Like they, they would never get used, but on that day and the next couple of days, that was part of their job was to augment and help ride out our flight dock, make sure pyro was repatriated appropriately. Um, something that honestly, they probably never even thought they would ever have to deal with. But again, they knew pyro. They saw pyro on a daily basis. We were such a small tight knit family. Cause it was such a small base. Um, it's one of those aspects that I never really thought about till afterwards. Uh, but yeah, you're right. This, that, this is a very sterile document. And that's the whole point of this is to dig in and again, to kind of provide some of that context and hopefully shed light into that. It's more than just the 42 pages here in this document. There's a lot, there's a lot happening. So were you, I imagine you were probably getting ready to get up for the day because about five o'clock in the morning and commander typically staying on the, on the day schedule handling meetings and things like that were you up yet or how did how how were you notified yeah so you know our voles had gone back and forth we had some that were taken off at more like midnight or two in the morning and then uh, this had gone back to we were doing like i think at like an 11 p.m takeoff and this was like a 4 a.m i can't remember the specifics but i'd kind of trained myself to listen when the jets started up i would use to kind of kind of stir a little bit. And then as soon as they took off, I'd get up and I'd go check with ops and see what was going on. And then I'd go kind of shower and get ready for the day. And um, so, yeah, I, I was kind of, I just, much like you, I just got out of the shower uh, when I got notified, uh, but I knew something was going on. I could hear the two jets. I'd already gone in and talked to ops and said, Hey, why do we have two jets overhead? I mean, they're literally right, right. over the top of our <laughs> tent. It's not, it's not like, how'd you hear it through the building? I mean, they're, they're, it's, it's just right yeah. above you and you're in a tent. Everybody on base can hear. Which is part of it. Um, and when I don't have to read that part of the, the mishap, but Pyro, so Bear has his gear door malfunction. They elect to hang over the base and to burn down gas. So they troubleshoot it, go through the checklist, which, hey, can't get to recycle. He get, Bear puts the gear down. He's got good indications. So he's just going to land the jet. They stay up above the jet at high key and they're burning down gas. Land, swap out jets and go. That's, that's the plan. And Pyro is doing a good job of managing that and kind of coordinating that with and letting Chaos know who's sitting top three as the operations supervisor there, relaying that back. But um, Pyro does make comments like, hey, we, we're probably waking everyone up down there. So let's go hold somewhere else. And that's when they uh, coordinate it. And it doesn't quite go in the sequence here. Uh, I will get to that in a minute. But I'll, again, kind of go into the AIB and jump back and forth and we can discuss it here. So, um, it talks about what an instrument approach is for those who are listening that don't know the very basic of it is an instrument approach is allows pilots to recover to an airfield in the weather without seeing the runway until a very low altitude and low visibility. So it's guidance that's provided based on different types of systems that allow you to line up with the runway and descend safely uh, to avoid obstacles down to the runway and land. So that's what's set up, but there are procedures, one of which, a part of the procedure is the initial approach fix, and that is where you start the procedure. And we're going to talk about the initial approach fix uh, and as well as the final approach fix, which is where 
you commence the descent, the final descent towards the runway uh, there. But what I want to highlight here is the next part. The 77th uh, EFS leadership, which is Blitz here, and then Blood, who is the DOR predominantly, you guys are setting the tone and putting out this guidance. So it says the 77th leadership put out a pilot read file on 13 October, which is when we showed up that outlined your expectations for landing at the base if an instrument approach was required. The pilot read file is a collection of guidance issued by the squadron commander or the director of operations that pilots must read prior to flying. Pilot read file guidance directed pilots to fly direct to the initial approach fix at or above the documented men's safe altitude. Upon receiving the final approach guidance, then you can fly the, commence the approach. Um, and I thought I had it here. You guys reissued that again on the 25th of October. So at two points issued this, we're kind of talking beforehand. So I was a relatively inexperienced F-16 guy. I was on the night train and I was tied to blood, our DO, as a, as a hard cruise. We kind of kept it for the first part of the deployment. And I can say every single time this is what we did. We did the full penetration approach because there was the there was no radar guidance. There's no approach control that had radar to vector you to the final like you would find in the United States or most, um, I guess, busier places or modern countries for that matter. This is out there in the middle of nowhere. So you have to fly a procedure that's published. The other thing I'll highlight here, you've more experience than me, but I've never seen a darker place on earth than here. And on this night, it was yeah, so two it was, millilux, which is like blacker than black. Yeah. Well, I find interesting about that too, is the local air force there are, you know, the Jordanians, they would schedule night and they would cancel about 50% of their night flights. Um, because they knew they didn't have radar. They relied on, you know, a lot of local airfield knowledge, a lot of systems that we didn't use that just look steer points where you your airplane like no with no precision guidance or anything they just knew that they were flat around where they were with not the united states you know safety apparatus making sure that their corridors were safe up to certain altitudes and all those kind of things and if it was really dark or at all weather they canceled because they knew they didn't have the safety requirements and so you know we we are trying to have a scenario where Pilots are coming back to a place that's really dark that they don't really know. Uh, and oh, by the way, the Jordanians could be flying. There could be other nations flying that may not be following the same procedures we're following. Right. So it's, I mean, it was identified the very first pilot meeting yep. we had on 13 October when, uh, you know, blood had already been there flying for a week. He sits me down. He's like, we got to talk about this and we got to hammer it. And so we start that, you know, everyone's excited about being there for combat and they, and they, they don't want to talk about procedures. And I, I, the very first thing I say is, Hey, I'm glad we all made it here, but listen up. Local ops here is going to be challenging. I would say it's as, as challenging or potentially even as dangerous as flying on the AOR. And we started talking about that um, because I wanted people to know that I was serious about it. And there's things I was trying to find those approach plates earlier, which they're, they're long gone and you know I can't look them up anymore. But um, there are some weird things about the approach. And I remember now, I, I don't know the exact specifics, but for a while there, there's like a tack ant. I mean, there's a tack ant on the field and the tuning guys were like going off the tack ant versus the ILS guidance because they thought they had to. So there's some confusion with that. Also being the CELO and building a lot of the divert packs. One of the things I discovered 
I remember it was one of our divert fields. The only approach in there was a TACAN. But the last time it was a Jordanian approach plate, so we had to get it approved to use. The plate was built in 1992. And so if you do the magnetic variation, I mean, it was like 25 degrees off from what the published was. So there were a lot of things there that we normally took for granted because everywhere we'd been operating, Iraq, Afghanistan, anywhere else in the world, like it was more or less established. And I mean, not that we hadn't been there, but I think a lot of stuff was kind of taken for granted. It really wasn't dug into like, hey, whatever, it's an ILS and we're good. It's dark. I think a lot, and that might be an unfair assumption, but I think a lot of people weren't focused necessarily on the basics because they're worried about combat. But I felt like, yeah. Yeah. So that's, you know, we didn't get the chance to talk about that with the Nassau guys, but um, the reason there was confusion is that approach plate was not a U.S. or DOD TERPS, which is the safety process um, where they go and they formally verify that the instrumentation works and will keep you in a safe corridor. That was not the process that had been done to write that plate, but everyone there locally knew it, right? And Masawa knew that there was a, uh, that TACAN was published incorrectly, the top of the approach. And so they knew, yeah, you don't actually do that. Even though it says that's supposed to say TACAN 2, not TACAN 1. Um, and that was local knowledge and everyone knew it. And, uh, but it wasn't informal guidance. So to your point. Yeah. So why wasn't informal guidance? You know, like who, like, is just one of those things Ah, we've been doing this, this long, it's fine. Or do you think like that should have been the formal guidance? Like what, what's the fix for that? What would have been the fix for that? Well, I, to be, to be frank with you. So the seventies ninth was the first squadron that went and right when I took over the gamblers, uh, they were the first one to go back to Jordan for training. We hadn't been doing that before. And uh, I think what happened is when the weather got bad enough that they canceled at night. So I don't think people face that situation. Yeah, I think that's the big thing. Yeah, I, I buy that. And then obviously we're replacing the Sal guys who are flying at night. But again, it's like the last half of their deployment and pure reaction to ISIS, which no one had ever heard of. And they were just like, if everyone remembers that time frame, I mean, it was, it was all over the news and completely unexpected just how fast those guys moved and the threat they were presenting to the region and to the globe for that matter. So um, that's kind of one of those things. And I guess it does paint a little bit of perspective, but it's like, Hey, you know, we're using it. A, we, we are occasionally using a field as a divert, which our only approach in there, there's no way we can fly it, you know, but, we're accepting that risk. And it's like, why are we accepting that risk when it's a King air that we probably send down from somewhere in the middle East or at, or Europe that terps this approach and we can get a DOD plate. So I wonder, I wonder about that. So this is a summary of the accident, some repeat here, but a little bit more detail as far as what transpired uh, with that. So Pyro and Bear, they take off. They do a standard radar trail departure, so it's nighttime. So uh, Bear is following Pyro two to three nautical miles in trail, and he's using his radar to follow him. Once they're airborne, Bear uh, attempts to raise his landing gear, but is unable to do so and because um, of the landing gear, door malfunction, landing gear door malfunction, and he immediately radios Pyro to inform of the situation. So Pyro directs their flight to orbit uh, above the base, eight to 10,000 feet, which are called high key. And he passes the tactical lead to bear. So pyro is now supporting bear 
probably in a wedge formation, just following him around as they're going through the checklist and trying to troubleshoot what's going on. So he's able to extend his landing gear and get a normal configuration with no other malfunctions. So that's when they decide, all right, we'll burn down gas and we're going to land because we got a good uh, bear has a good configuration. So Pyro goes through and he coordinates with both the control tower to burn down gas. He's coordinated with ops and they're going to land as soon as possible so that they can go to a spare aircraft and then launch and support their combat mission. So Pyro expressed concern with the pre-dawn hour of waking everyone up, which is very considerate of him, I'll say. Um, and they coordinate for tower to move. This part here in the AIB, again, I think paints the context of this, the environment we were dealing with. And this is the communication between Pyro and the tower. Um, so they go out, they hold, and they're ready to start back. But Pyro radios requested to send to 4,200 feet to intercept the ILS, runway 31 full stop. The tower comes back, eh, Roger, report localizer established. Pyro responds, Wilco. So again, again, really hammer it home here is there, there are language barriers. So these guys do speak decent English. And I think we had an American in the tower, if I remember correctly. So if everything went sideways, we would definitely have someone could jump on the radio. But uh, you're dealing with Jordanians. And again, English is typically not their, their first language and no radar coverage for it. So uh, at from 252, well, I guess it's Zulu. So at 452 Zulu or 452 local to 454, two minutes, Pyro is contacting uh, operations. He's coordinating with ATC and they're working their recovery. But in this time period, he makes three 60 degree bank turns with little heading change while he appears to be getting, trying to get a radar lock on Bear, who he's put out front, and Bear has the tactical lead. So the bad aircraft is going to land first, which is a common practice, especially in this scenario here. And he's just going to maintain a radar trail from him, or made a radar trail formation. So um, we'll keep going here. The mishap wingman, which is Bear, he is out front of the formation. He is setting up for the ILS. They're intercepting the localizer course at approximately 10 nautical miles from the runway. Pyro maintains two to three nautical miles of radar trail behind Bear, and he is descending through 4,000 feet, levels off at 3,500 3, feet MSL momentarily, and then continues his descent. As he passes 3,000 MSL, still heading west, so trying to line up with the runway, his throttle is near idle, and he's at a descent rate of 2,700 feet per minute, which I highlighted because that's, pretty, that's about three times what you'd want there on average now again don't I don't have the, like the complete picture but 2700 feet per minute on ils is, is pretty steep um he continues the descent 16 seconds from impact he descends to 2300 feet msl and approximately 40 and and approximately 40 degrees to intercept the final approach course he uses 42 degrees of bank so that's for instrument approach 30 degrees of bank is standard I would say in a fighter, like if I had ever exceeded that, I'd be lying. But it's it's kind of one of those things at night, you try to temper that as much as possible. So maybe an indication here that um, not quite, doesn't have a complete spatial awareness here. Near the end of the turn and six seconds prior to impact, Pyro called the missed wingman asked if he was receiving the ILS glide slope. 
And during the last flight of second or last seconds of flight, Pyro initiates a 4G level pull away from the ground. So he's recognizing probably the ground rush there is my assumption. Um, Bear lands and he's trying to radio uh, Pyro seeing because he doesn't see him land behind it. And we'll just kind of skip there. But um, none, nonetheless, some I, highlights from there, right, is we're talking about the initial approach fix. We're talking about a, a descent. So they set themselves up for radar vectors or not radar vector. They set them up for self vectors to the approach. So they're not going to the IAF, the initial approach fix and flying the full procedure for lack of a better term. For those who aren't familiar, they're, they're kind of cutting the corner. Would you buy that? Yeah, I think so. Um, if you look in the uh, testimony, which is unfortunately not always available depending on where you download the, the AIB, but they are asked about that. And in the co- the communications between Bear and Pyro, Bear's, uh, Bear's in the lead, right? Because he's got the problem and, and Pyro wants to make sure he lands first um, in case he has to go around that he can still support him. And, and what he says is, hey, do you want me to go to steer point? If it's 959, I can't remember what the steer point is, but the one that is supposed to be for the uh, initial approach. Six, and he says, okay, I'm going towards it. And so what I think happened is they're intercepting at 90 degrees out. And so Pyro elects to turn early so you don't have this big overshooting final, which can be disoriented, right? You, it's dark out there. You're flying instruments, even though technically you're VFR because of the weather. Um, I think Pyro wants to have it be more like a traditional 45-degree intercept. That's how I interpret that, looking at the testimony and the pictures. Uh, but yes, they are definitely not intercepting the IAF um, like on a more straight-edge type of event they're going to intercept final in between the IF and final approach right. and again i would have to go back and like really think about it or look at it if i could find it but going to the IF, flying the full procedure i mean it's going to add several minutes to this right and they're trying to get on the ground step to a spare get going so that they can meet their vulnerability period and be there to go support guys on the ground so they're the weather is good. It's just dark out there. So they're not doing anything that I think is, you know, completely, completely crazy. Cause we're, again, we we're talking beforehand, um, flying a night visual approach backed up with precision guidance is not an, an impossible or uncommon thing to have happen in the air force. Um, so I kind of, I'm a, I skipped through a few pages here, but it goes into medical history. Um, you know, a look back for, his flying history, health, duty limits, all that is normal. There's nothing that stands out, highlights the fact that, you know, Pyro is one of the best guys in the squadron. He's teed up to go to weapons school, so very competent aviator. And that's kind of where we're jumping forward here, but to paint the picture. So um, this is the aspect I really want to get, glean some of your perspective on. And it goes into the supervision here, right, which – Ultimately, I know as as the boss, um, you're you're owning owning this piece, but I think we need to provide some context. So, published instrument procedures provide sufficient guidance to safety or to safely fly instrument approach to land. On October 13th, 2014, the 77th EFS, that's you, you provide written guidance to all the pilots with instructions for night landings, emphasizing the need to start the instrument approach at the IF. And additionally, uh, the squadron reissued that similar guidance. See, I knew it was in here. Approximately two weeks later on the 25th of October, 2014. 
Um, and about the same time, began working with the 77th EFS and the 407th Air Expeditionary Group's Chief of Standardization and Evaluation, who was you know, my immediate boss, to publish a flight crew information file. The FCIF was not published at the time of this mishap. Nevertheless, the 77th uh, EFS leadership was aware that some pilots did not adhere to these procedures. So I'll stop there. I have more that I wanted to highlight. Um, were you like, were you aware? Is that a thing? Because I, I have my perspective, which I'll tell it after I hear yours. But was was that a thing? Was that rampant in the squadron? What made you want to publish that a second time? So you asked the question, uh, did I know that people were following that? And And what I would say is, so the way that that, deployment was going at that time. I hadn't done my first night tour. Like I, I tried, um, you know, blood was going to fly mostly nights. That's, that's the part about being the DO, right? Cause I have meetings that I had to do during the day and I, he doesn't want to go to those meetings. And I don't blame him. So we had not, um, done our swap where I was going to fly nights. And then in the middle, our team fly nights, I would fly, uh, nights in the middle of deployment and then switch back to ride for the day nights. Um, and because we not, had not done that swap yet, I hadn't landed a lot at night. I would take off usually early in the morning while it was still dark. I did bowls usually just a little bit later than this. I'd take off at like five o'clock in the morning and then I'd land, you know, when it was noon, something like that. Um, but, and it will be interesting to hear your perspective. I'm looking forward to this. Hopefully you, you do it and, you know, get, well, the full truth, but I, felt like at the time I had emphasized to, to folks, look, you, you will have been in the airplane nine hours, eight hours. Like you are not going to be fresh. Your, your mentality, your, your, your mental acuity is going to be a little bit stressed. You're just going to have to come back from the AOR, like go take your time, slow down, follow the MSA and make sure you get the initial approach fixed, which gives you the nice long 12 miles to get your airplane configured slow down in the formation you want, check your altitudes so that you are configured on speed, ready to go. When you hit the final approach fix, which is, should be where you get the glide slope and then you come on and land. And so, um, I would be surprised that people weren't doing that. Um, there is one big caveat, right? Like, um, if you had come back from a short flight, and it happened to be a high of the night, which weren't that often, and visibility wasn't great. Um, you might skip the high arc portion and go straight to the initial approach fix um, because you could see the airfield, let's say. But that was pretty unusual. So I, I was anticipating that people were either flying the full procedure or that they were flying to the instrument approach fix using the step downs um, above the MSAs to get to get on the glide slope. Yeah. So. To caveat this or to like paint the picture, if um, when I left South Carolina, if I never want to talk to you again, I would have that ability. It'd be pretty easy to do it, um, you know, uh, which is separation. But I will I will say so. And there's also obviously no tie for me to make you feel good about yourself here um, because it doesn't matter anymore what you think of me, really. Right. Um, but I, I will say um and again, maybe, you know, I, I don't, I'm not privy to everything. You know, I was attached to blood's hip, but the night train, cause that's where I was. So take off at night and land at night and about half the squadron, probably, I mean, maybe a third of the squadron, right. Fit that realm because there's some guys who are maybe taking off during the day, landing at night and taking off at night, landing at the day. But 
I was all night there. It felt like for the first three months or so. Um, and it was a relatively small group of us. And I can't like, I remember us talking about this stuff and probably griping about the full procedure, but everyone that I know like did it. So it wasn't like a, it wasn't a, I didn't think people were scoffing this. And I will also say to your credit, I've had a lot of bosses, but you're very detail oriented and you convey it in a really smart manner. Like when we showed up there, I remember specifically, yeah, I mean, air quotes for people listening right now. <laughs> um, you, you do it in a really smart manner. And again, not to make you feel good about yourself, but I'll, this is my one last nice thing I say about you. Um, but, you know, when we're there, probably just a handful of guys had had shot live missiles. You know, they had actually taken off with live missiles on their jet ever before. And if they had, it was at a WESIP, so they've only done it once. And now we're flying out there with two live AMRAMs, you know, a 9X and a 9 mic. So it's for real. So pre-flighting not only the bombs, but pre-flighting the missiles, everything that goes into that. And you made it a point. You guys will go out there. You'll go to the jet, like as we're doing, as we're in processing, you guys are going to go out there and you're going to do a pre-flight with one of the Masawa guys. You're going to go out there with poker, the weapons officer. You guys are going to go through and get familiar with this stuff ahead of time. Additionally, with that, I do remember them being the emphasis on the admin pieces of this, which often gets left out in the fighter pilot world, right? You need to be able to put your pants on and go to work without having to be told how to put your pants on, right? Like doing an instrument approach is putting your pants on and going to work or getting home. Like it's just something you really just don't have to think about. If there's an ILS or there's a tack in, and that's where the brief usually ends. But I do remember us spending a lot of time talking about this in the beginning. And it'd be curious. I need to like track down Hulk and Prox, uh, suspect. And uh, I think Flint was also night trained there and glean some of their experiences, get their take. And I'll do that because again, my impression of everyone on the night, I think, especially in the beginning. And then after this mishap, you know, has reinforced how important the basics were. And I don't think we ever slipped from it, but, that that was just me. That's my take. That that's my thoughts. I thought we were very detail oriented. I thought you were very detail oriented. I thought blood was very detail oriented, and I thought the tone was set for it. There was no one cutting corners, in my opinion, or that I saw. Right, and I admit that I don't have the full picture. But again, we're a pretty small group, and I felt like we were relatively aligned. So that leads into the next next piece of this, and it goes despite published seventy seventh EFS guidance to the contrary. The self-setup approach by members of the 77th EFS was a common practice within the squadron. At a, mem at a minimum, some pilots perceive that the 77th EF leadership in formal focus in regards to night approaches was to meet approach requirements by the final approach fix. Um, and Pyro used this self-setup, as it says, approach during the mishap flight and did not start the instrument approach at the IAF as indicated by the published instrument approach uh, procedures. So, I mean, I kind of take offense to this a little bit, right? Um, and I'm sure you do uh, to, to a certain degree. But I mean, there with it saying, yeah, this is a common practice. And again, I, I, want to, I have to go back and ask some of the guys, but I don't feel like any of us were cutting corners. We talk about Pyro setting up for this, like doing a night visual approach is not an ideal thing to do, but with backing it with precision guidance, completely legal. 
and I can't remember if we had, I think we had Pappy's there. So like you have the visual guidance to, to get you to the runway and do it safely um, for it. So there's nothing wrong with that, but that, that aspect just kind of hearing is like, I never got interviewed. So I'm, I'm curious as to, you know, where that information came from or where that opinion came from. I know it came from the general here, but where, how did he come to that conclusion? So I, I think I'm going to answer that in two parts. Um, the, the first part is, um, so self-setup is not defined anywhere, right? And so the general may have a different opinion. The pilot member may have a different opinion. I think what is generally accepted as, and I'm going to get to that in a second, is that you don't go to the initial approach fix. You cut that corner and intercept prior to the final approach fix at the final approach fix altitude, right? Which can I just say is completely right. standard practice when you're on radar vectors. Very rarely does any controller control you to the initial approach fix unless you need to or ask for it or trade. They usually let you hit the final approach fix three to five miles prior on speed at altitude so you can get configured and then hit the final approach fix. Okay, so the only difference there is you have radar who's doing some safety function for you. Make sure you don't hit mountains. Make sure you deconflict from traffic, um, those kind of things. Okay. The reason that Blood and I, um, and Blood was very adamant about this, he and I were lockstep on this. We said, you need to go to the initial approach fix is because the, it is a black hole effect. It is so dark when you get uh, down to altitude at that location that when you finally are approaching the final approach fix, and I don't know why, if it's just haze or just where the base sits, when you finally saw the lights from the instrument approach fix, like it took you a minute to let your eyes adjust. It was really the first few flying, first few times you flew it, it almost gave you motion sickness. It was such a dark to bright event. And so we said, look, you, you need to do this earlier than you're normally used to so that everything is stabilized, ready to go. This isn't, you know, like you're back at Shaw where you flew it a million times. And oh, by the way, you can see the base for 40 miles and, and you can, you know, make some last minute adjustments. Um, so that's one thing, right? What does self setup mean? And, and when they're asking these right. questions, they keep referring to self-setup. Well, everything we did was self-setup, right? Like no one was authorizing me to fly the high ILS. Like I flew the high ILS until I talked to tower. There was no official handoff there. Right. So yeah. is that a self-setup? You know what I mean? Like, so I, I think that we didn't necessarily understand across the process what we were talking to. No, oh, by the way, like we've had F-16s and F-15Es and F-15Cs in Europe have problems with ILS. We had an event at Shaw, even before we left, we had an event at Hill, you know, F-22s have had these problems, right? Like flying instruments can be challenging even when you can see everything that's happening, let alone when you've been in that cockpit for nine hours and you just came back from a right. combat story. No, that's not what Pyro and Bear were doing, but they were dealing with an EP. Yes, it was an easy EP. Yes, it was handled, but it took you out of your rhythm, right? They're thinking about other things now and they're going to land quickly. They want to turn because the CAC still wants them to get most of their vol. I mean, there's external factors going. So that's one side of it, right? Like I, I felt like from an AIB perspective, we weren't very specific with what we meant there. And therefore we didn't necessarily get the right information that we needed. To your point, if you look at what was published in terms of testimony, um, I think there was more testimony that they got than that was published, but, um, I don't feel like we got a good understanding. Like they make a couple of statements in the AIB about informal manner of leadership. And I get it. That's the buck stops with the, with the commander. And I understand that. But at the same time, like I didn't read in the testimony when that was the case. 
And so there, there's obviously things in the background that we didn't get. It'd be interesting to see that testimony. Uh, I mean, because again, I think, you know, thinking about it. So Pyro was that, you know, late or early morning, you know, so sometimes take off at dark and land in the daytime. So he was like the next vol after me. Um, and I'm trying to think, you know, again, like I'm curious, I don't think they interviewed any of the guys who were flying at night all the time other than blood, right? Cause he's the DO and he's going to get interviewed in the AIB. But I feel like the, the rest of us never got interviewed. So it'd be, I feel like our opinions or at least our perspective probably would have been valuable in there because we're the ones landing at night when typically, although Pyro, I think he did 18 flights there and landed five at night. But again, it was changing around so much. But um, so where, you know, where that kind of testimony came from. Because I just don't feel like it maybe necessarily captured the the entire picture or what actually was true. You brought a good point with the, um, yeah, what's the self setup. But they 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 yeah, they like latched on to that aspect for for whatever reason. And I'm who knows what it why why the why the board latched onto that. Yes. Yeah, so they asked the one common question. I read the testimony again to prepare for this, and the one common question amongst all the testimony that. The general, the board president kept asking was, uh, how close could you get to the final approach fix? Like, what was your guidance? And, and I was like, sir, I don't understand that question because, um, that's not my guidance, right? There is nowhere you can go, uh, find an air force document Well, you can be three miles from a final approach fix if you're in a 16, right. but eight miles if you're in a B1 and 10 miles if you're in a C-17. That's not how it works. Um, other than to say it is we get, we intercept between the IAF and that, and the final approach fix will run radar vectors all the time. So, you know, those kind of things happen. Um, the last thing I would say, we talked about the safety board versus the AIB earlier, and this is the second point I was going to make is for the safety board, we took all of the squadron guidance that we'd written and we compiled it and handed it to the safety board. And I think there was like, I think it was like 15 squadron refiles and a couple more pilot refiles. But there's information that we had published. Some of it had to do with administration stuff. Some of it had to do with uh, flying stuff. There was all kinds of different schedule changes and things like that. I, when I did my testimony, was under the impression that the AIB got that information. You know, when you're part of the AIB as a testimony provider, as a witness, they don't tell you what they've done. And you don't get a lot of say when you get to testify. Um, they don't. They don't give you any preparatory, like these are things we want to hear about. You kind of just show up like it's like, you know, a trial, like at a court. And so part of my answer is I go back and read it now. Um, they don't always kind of have as much detail as you think, because my assumption is that they had the two squadron refiles that dealt with that. And oh, by the way, we had published five or six more that dealt with, in general, the administrative phase, both, you know, in the AOR, when we were going back and forth to tankers, we'd had some people that weren't as detailed as I wanted a bit to be. And I just kept trying to emphasize that people like admin is going to be deadly because you're going to be tired in the middle of the night. You can't take anything for granted. So I feel like if, if they would have either had that, I noticed they didn't publish it as part of the AIB. I would like to have seen that published to get a more accurate picture. Yeah. Hey man, I, I'm not objective. Maybe I wasn't doing it right. Like I can't, but we don't have the information to know what, what we agreed to. Um, the other thing that was in the AIB when they asked me is like, why hadn't we published the FCIF yet? And so for people that don't understand that, that FCIF, when it's published, that is guidance for everyone coming in on that base. Well, we don't own that base, right? So I got to get the Jordanian Air Force to tell me 
A, I can publish it and B, they'll adhere to it. And if they aren't adhered to it, how I'll know when they aren't so that we can decomplete from there, right? There is a lot of stuff that has to happen. Oh, by the way, I also have to get that coordinated through the CAC so that when people divert to our base, they know there's been a change in procedure. So it's, we had started it in October, right? I mean, we've been working on it for six weeks, but it's a long process. Um, and so that's why it hadn't been published yet. Well, you just mentioned Jordanians, but there are four different countries flying F-16s in and out of that base. So um, getting dealing with all the politics that go into it, there's a few moving pieces. The um, As I kind of like think through this, what, what was the AIB like? Because I don't remember them coming there. The SIB, I remember those board members uh, being out there for at least a limited period of time like boots on the ground. Was the AIB there or did you guys do this via telecon? How, how'd that work? Yeah. So remember this is 2014 pre COVID pre teams and pre zoom and pre Google meets. Uh, we did it all virtually. So they, no one showed up from the AIB to the base. Um, and obviously I have some heartburn with that because they didn't interview people from other squadrons, or at least they didn't publish it to talk about how dark it was in the AOR. They didn't send someone out to fly with us. They didn't send someone out to come inspect the eighth program or anything at the front desk or top three or anything like that. So again, um, maybe it would have made me look worse. Maybe it would have made the squadron look worse. I, I can't say it did or didn't, but I just don't think we got the full picture. And so, um, and you know, like, I think we're a lot better at communicating via, via yeah. zoom and via uh, computer video conferencing now, but at that time it was super awkward. And I had never done it before. So, you know, there was some challenges there as well. Yeah. I definitely, again, I just keep going back to the fact of like, you know, I don't think anyone on the night train really got interviewed about this. And Ed, again, I'm not a general and I've never been a board president. Maybe you didn't need to know that information. Maybe you did. Who knows? Uh, but it does present it when you, you, know, you kind of put it in there as fact that this was common practice for, for all of us to ignore, ignore the guidance and set that up. It does make me question a little bit, uh, but to, to go through it. Right. And this is like highlighted in the AIB, um, I think three times. So page 22, again, it says it was common practice to compensate for the lack of radar approach to do this set, self setup approach. And then the board president in his summary and his findings that it was common practice for again, uh, squadron members of the 77th there to, to self set up for an approach and fly not to the IAF, but to basically do radar self radar vectors, if you will, or what you would normally get vectored around in that type pattern, uh, for the approach there. Um, looking back at it is like, do you think there's anything you would go back and change? Cause I really, like, I don't remember anything changing after Pyro's mishap. Because I felt like we were still, we were going out there. Did I miss that? Or is there anything you'd go back and change? Uh, well, I mean, uh, hindsight being in 2020, I had canceled that flight. And I said, hey, when they land, don't get them in the spares or, you know, like cancel that flight. Like I'd do whatever I could do to, to stop that from happening, right? But yeah, obviously, if you knew that was going to happen, you would stop it. But um, it, <laughs> I get is that a fair question? Is there anything you think you would do differently? No, that is a fair question. So, um, I mean, as you can imagine, 
My yeah. sleep patterns were not great <laughs> for a long time. Um, I mean, I thought about this for hours and days in my life and, you know, like it's the worst, one of the worst possible things that can happen to you as a commander or anyone in the squadron, right? Like to have a member of your close knit team, your family perish. Um, but I went back and looked at all the guidance, sat down and talked to blood. I interviewed him I went back and looked. you know, I was taking notes every day just to remind myself what had happened. Um, and I looked through my notes and I didn't find areas that we had not addressed. Did I communicate it effectively? Evidently not. I'm not sure. Um, but I know from the very first moment we got there, we were worried about flying at night in such a dark airspace in a place that was not as controlled as we normally used to. And I felt like we emphasized that every time we got together formally, it was on our SEPs, it was on our, you know, which is our monthly training that we did. Um, we did, um, we didn't have simulators to help us keep current with emergency procedures there, but we did what we call tabletops where we'd all get together and talk about emergency procedures specific to the AOR. What would we do? Where would we go? What airfields? And we always talked about how to deal with night and going into airfields that were not, we were less familiar with and even coming back to the airfield that we were familiar with. Right. Um, I don't know. We, we, it was a tough time in the air force. We were really asking a lot for our pilots. Um, people made mistakes every time they flew and we tried our best to understand and learn from them. Um, I don't know what I would have done differently. I, I don't know. I mean, I thought about that for days in my life. Again, to paint the picture, you know, from an underling there, like I felt like we, we had a great attention to detail and it's just one of these Swiss cheese model, right? Like this one got all the way through the slices of cheese lined up and it just so happened. This was the one, but I thought we had a lot of, a lot of good error capturing dealing with a lot of variables that most people like you didn't have to deal with really in Iraq, you know, pre yeah, pre ISIS, right? Well, when you're operating out of like Balad and when, then when you're operating out of like Bagram and Kandor, granted there's different, different threats, different environment. But those places were so much more well-established. I mean, Kandahar had a PAR, you know, like just a completely different, different setup than what we were dealing with there. So, um, yeah, this is, there's nothing easy about this. And doesn't get any, you know, doesn't, doesn't get any easier. Yeah, not, I don't disagree. And again, like, I mean, clearly I'm, I'm not objective. Uh, I would say that up front. And so, you know, my opinion is, has to be taken with the appropriate grain of salt. Um, but I think it's important to discuss these AIBs. Uh, I mean, I think the board, uh, was trying to get to the right solution. Um, but I think like any other process, we have to be honest that maybe it isn't always, uh, at operate at the highest level. There's time constraints, there's resource constraints. Um. And I just feel like this particular one, because I was involved with it, um, probably didn't have as much context or detail as required to understand what was going on and make sure that we get to the right lessons learned. Now, at the end of the day, um, they said that it was pilot error and, uh, you know, I, I'm not so sure the safety board saw it that much different. I, I, uh, you know, those are privileged safety board communications are privileged. Um, and truthfully, I don't remember their exact wording, um, but I would also say that in general, the safety board 
probably had a bigger picture of the context of what was happening and the dynamic nature of the mission and the location that maybe was not captured in the AIB. Yep. I think good point there. You know, I mean, it's resource limited, which lends to my opinion, which definitely does not matter. Um, but I think it is something that if you, if you look, if you look at this, right in the end, the AIB, they got to say, this is at fault, or this is the cause. And these are contributing factors that go into it. In this case, it's, you know, Pyro is disoriented. He hits the ground. And then one of the contributing factors they're saying is pilots were setting up for these self self approaches, right? That's a very general statement. But I go back to like the divert down in the South, which I, again, I can't remember the name, but like, Hey, we're going to use this field. And it has been like our, the field we're operating on has been Terps. The field we're using is a divert has an approach from 1992 that it hasn't been updated. We're doing this last minute. We've been into this base and jets have been into this base for a while. Again, resource limited. I get that aspect of it, but not even shining a light on, Hey, this is going to be a hub for combat operations. We're going to be flying these jets in and out of here to support the mission, but not really giving it the infrastructure and the facility that it needs to safely operate. Like that's not even mentioned in, in my opinion, again, which doesn't matter, but like, how is that not even brought up? Like bringing these up to standards. Like we can put a trailer out there with a the radar and put it in American. Like it's going to be like some state department and host nation dealings, but like, that's a pretty easy kill in my book that we can, Probably with a team of 10 people, you can have a radar facility set up there and exponentially increase the safety for four nations that are operating out of there. And again, I know it's, it's, it's a little bit, that's simplifying it way down, right? But we don't even address things like that. Is I mean, again, is that valid? Is there anything like that that you think should have been in there? No, absolutely. I, I, again, it goes to the, the context of what was happening. Um, and the dynamic nature of the mission, I, I think that, um, you know, the irony that what's going on in the background here is major Riley, uh, shows up to be the, the, the wing Stan Val officer. And he comes to me in the first week, he goes, all these diverse that are published, they haven't been proven. I can't even, some of these people won't answer, you know, when I call the on the line to the OSS, it's going to tell me about, like, they, they don't answer the phone. And when they do, they don't even know what uh, approaches they have because we just haven't exercised this process. And so when we left, we had seven divert bases, each of them that had one valid Terps approach, except for the, I yeah. think it was Aqaba down in the South. But either way, it was the only, the only area that we went that was VFR only. Couldn't divert there if it was night or not VFR. And so, you know, I, I felt like we did a lot to help the process there. Um, and the irony is we also suffered the most when we didn't adhere to the process. So I don't know. I, I agree with you. I think that's a valid comment. I, I think there probably was some internal reflection that we could talk about and maybe then use that to expand to other bases. I don't know if that happened. I wasn't at the CAC at that time, but absolutely. I think it's valid. Yeah. And I, I don't want to say like, t I guess, take the, the blame off us, right? There's definitely things we could do better and highlight. I just have a problem to a certain extent with the expectation to go operate out of these places. And I know like the staff, the resources, organizations exist 
to solve like, hey, we need a Terps these places. Hey, we need radar coverage here. Those things exist, but not highlighting that and making that a focal point to increase the margin of safety. Because in my opinion, this AIB, right, it, it, it highlights what went wrong, right? But does it really give us anything, any fixes or recommendations? And I'm not the saying there's always a case where that's gonna where that's gonna be a thing, right? Like Pyro is disoriented internally. That's that's him, right? But it could happen to anyone, and these are measures that could help prevent it, right? But nowhere in there, in my mind, is there something like we could identify to Big Blue because I think Big Blue, the Air Force in this case there are resources that are available and they're sitting on the shelf that if it gets the spotlight shown on it, gives it energy for us to pull those toys off the shelf and make things safer. Rain's humble opinion. Again, it doesn't matter. Well, I mean, it matters to us, right? Like we talked about, it's personal. Yeah. It's personal <laughs> and it matters to us. Right. And, uh, and you're right. Like you're, my opinion of you doesn't matter to you anymore, but it still matters to us what happened to Pyro when it happens. <laughs> I mean, you can take the person yeah. out of the Air Force, you can't take the Air Force out of the person is the old saying there. So, I mean, it still matters. Yeah. I still care, um, you know, about people that are flying the 16s around and having to do same kind of situations now. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think it matters. I think that we run the risk of not getting the correct lessons learned when we don't get to a foundational understanding of what happened. Um, but again, I'm not objective. You have to take that green salt, right? There's no way I'm objective in this. Um, so. Yeah, fair. Well, same, same. All right. Um, I think that horse is dead, but I would like to shift gears just a little bit, but tie into this um, because the unfortunate piece is this is not the last time the Air Force is going to have an AIB. You know, metal is going to keep getting bent and people will keep perishing. And it's just the nature of the business. We're involved in combat operations. We lose pyro. We're a close knit organization. You're the boss. You're having to deal with a lot of things and manage a lot of things immediately after his passing, but the mission doesn't stop. What were some things you were dealing with and how did you get the squadron kind of up and going and back on the horse? Yeah. So a couple of things. First off, you, um, I mean, there's very practical matters. You mentioned mortuary affairs, you know, I had to do, uh, next to Ken, right. And I can't, I mean, if this was in the United States, it would be me going out to uh, notify Pyro's family. And that wasn't able to be done. So I relied on people back in the United States, which, oh, by the way, my family got involved with, just due to the nature of our friendships. And, um, you know, so now my, my family is dealing with things that have happened in, in combat deployment as well. And there are, you know, you have to coordinate with the host nation and coordinate with the CAOC and, uh, you know, we're going to have a memorial service and our other units going to come in. They did other units came in for it. Uh, the host nation wanted to do, uh, an event for it. They work with Pyro all the time. Uh, you have to then coordinate with the CAOC when you're going to stand back up, right? Is it 24 hours, 48 hours, 72 hours? Cause they're going to, you know, they're not sending you home. They're not sending your whole, you know, home. they're not sending a replacement. So you're going to stand back up. Um, uh, and then, you know, there are legal proceedings you have to deal with in terms of um, getting all of Pyro's paperwork correct. And, and, you know, someone else is doing that for me, but I'm the one that has to be on the hook to make sure that gets all correct and all the correct forms are filled out. Um, medical follow-ups, things that he has to have to, 
you know, his family needs to continue to get benefits and those kind of things. Um, and then all the time, the background is I got to get the squadron ready to fly again. And the unknown is how are people going to react? And in the first 72 hours, that reaction probably doesn't show up, right? It really is kind of delayed. I would offer for our squadron, it was delayed until we left. But in a microcosm, like most people after that first flight come back and you get a good sense. And most people handled it professionally, even though I know people were struggling. There was a couple of people that we pulled off the squad, off the schedule. And, you know, now you're doing some individual counseling. Um, we didn't have access to mental health professionals at that base at that time. Um, and, and we, you know, I, I guess if there is something different, I would have brought in mental health professionals. The CAC could have done that for me. And I would have, even though I ended up, we did not need it, not needing them. It wasn't just us, right? And a whole maintenance group, it had a whole base, but it was a small base. Like you said, everybody knew everybody. Um, and so I, I think it affected people uh, in ways that were unanticipated. So, you know, I dealt with that from December 1st until the day we left and afterwards, right? That's, that's just to continue beg that, you know, just continue to deal with. Uh, but to your point, how do you get the squadron stood back up? I told you when we started this interview, I had a group of people who were amazing at being autonomous. Um, self-problem solvers, self-starters. And, uh, I relied on, on you. I followed the lead of what, what the operators, what the captains in the squadron wanted to do. And, and that was to get right back up and do the mission. And as problems arose, deal with them. And so I put all my effort in dealing with the leadership so that you guys could get back to doing what you trained to do, um, to try to get life back to normal. And, uh, I was really fortunate. I mean, just an amazing group of people and you guys just took care of it was a pretty good group, you know, that's, I think everyone can, uh, yeah, I don't know. You got like your favorite squadron, your favorite memories and stuff like that. But it's one of those that, yeah, to this day, right? Like we're all bonded for multiple reasons. You know, Pyro's mishap, I think definitely really solidified that. And I actually, I found a picture that's probably about a month ago that I think flash took. Cause I was just trying to picture like where, you know, where our rooms were and, who was in the photos or whatever, but you know, I remember it was poker sitting across and everyone's like kind of going through a morale box or whatever, but you know, we had no internet. All we had was just each other just to kind of talk to. And there's some like, there's some long days, right? Like we just been going full bore to slamming on the brakes to now not talking to family. And it's really just, you know, you're there with your squadron mates kind of going through and processing this, which was a new thing for many people. So, um, yeah, it was a good, that was a good group of people. You know? Yeah. A hundred percent. It was, it was an outstanding group of people. I was very fortunate, uh, to be the 77 squad commander at that time. That's for sure. I had an unbelievable team. Well, uh, as we kind of wrap up here, is there anything, you know, I, I kind of go through, I went through the AIB, right? Gloss, I didn't say gloss over it, but I didn't go into its full uh, detail. I'm going to do a separate episode, just breaking that down kind of line by line, which people can listen to. But is there any other context that I'm missing or anything else you think is important to to put out there for this? Um, well, so, you know, we talked about the background of Pyro and how hard you were pushing to get him up to speed to deploy. And, and uh, 
you know, I would just say for context, um, that doesn't just happen, right? It's not like, okay, I'm there. I'm good. When, when he showed up, right? So we got him to be a flight commander, got him to be an instructor. You know, he had helped us deploy, but then we're there. Well, now he has to instruct every day. Now, you know, now he has to fly with the youngest people in the squadron sometimes. Now he has to do flight commander things and deal with, you know, pilots still need qualifications. You still need currencies. There's all these things you have to track and, and deal with. Um, and that was all brand new for him. So think about the scenario that he's in. He, he yeah. you know, he'd already been running, as you said, afterburner for the better part of a year just to get here. And now he works seven days a week and the squadron didn't take a day off from October to when we got home, which was in May, you know, last yeah. part of April. And so he's heavily involved in that. And so while people got some time off, like, I just think we forget the pace of operations that it took while we were there. Um, and so just something to remember. Yeah. Well, and, and as you mentioned it, I know, but again, I think it's hammered home. You said like October when we got home, but probably pyro for the year prior to that had been running at that pace. I remember him and Ashley getting married, you know, it was like after one of his, his flights going down to the courthouse and just squeezing in the opportunity to get married. Cause there's, there was just no time to do anything. And he's going through these upgrades. So he's in on the weekends, he's pro Joe. So he's in on the week. I mean, it's just, it's nonstop. So I think I had a, I had a, right. You don't know what you don't know. And there's a lot of stuff I don't know, but, um, I remember at the B course, I had a maintainer. He's like, when I got out of the jet for a story, he's like, so sir, are you just heading home now? And I'm like, no, that's not how it works. You know, but it, the time that guy saw me was an hour prior to I took off, right? I show up, I shake his hand, I hop in the jet, we crank, I disappear for an hour and a half. I come back, shake his hand and in his mind, that was it. That's all I did. Right. But you don't see the the day prior where you spend 12 hours mission planning the day of where you're showing up, you know, six hours prior to take off because you're briefing finalized mission planning and then the debrief, which happens and it could take six, seven, eight hours, if not longer, you being a weapon school instructor, you guys just doing marathon debriefs for half a day. Um, for no good yeah, reason. I mean, why, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you want to be an eagle yeah. guy with a bunch of chalk and spend one full day debriefing? But I digress. So yeah, I think, I think that's a really good. No, but I think yeah. a good rule of thumb, right? Like when you're at home training, it's three to one. Three hours of debrief and planning for every hour you fly. I think that's, we usually fly between an hour and hour and a half. And if it's an hour and a half flight, you have four and a half hours for brief and debrief. There's other time involved in that, but like just for the brief and debrief. So it is long days, um, but even deployed, that's why you try to make things so standard because your debriefs are going to be yeah. long. You're, you're going to have to look at if you had a weapons deployment, if you talk to the cat, like there's all these things you have to debrief and you have to understand what happened. So they are going to be long days no doubt. for sure. Awesome. Well, Blitz, I appreciate you taking the time today. Go through this. Um, again, Pyro, just an amazing human being. I'll have some links in there to Pyro's Wings, which is his foundation, his parents and his uh, wife Ashley started, which getting young people involved in aviation, specifically ROTC cadets, helping them fly and get scholarships. So you can go out there and support that. Again, I'll have links for that out there, but I appreciate you taking the time going through this and providing some context to the, the whole mishap. 
Yeah, Raiden, I appreciate it. Uh, like I, I agree with you, please support Pyro's Wings. I just talked to uh, Pyro's parents not too long ago for a recent event that we had. It's a good organization. I'm proud to talk to them and continue to support each year. And then uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. Absolutely. Cheers. Well, I hope this part of the episode was beneficial and hopefully you got something out of it. Hang around for part three where some former gamblers join me and they share a story about Pyro. Afterburn Podcast is a proud supporter of Guns Gear Memorial Foundation, helping our veterans and their families when they need it most. To learn more, visit gunsgarren.com slash rain.